Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Nobody's ever made a dubstep remix of our song and it pisses me oh off. Oh my gosh. No I'll bet Cam could do it. We should request that. <laughs> yeah. Or someone else. I mean Cam can do it, but you know, we've got plenty of listeners. One of them out there has to be able to make a dubstep remix. All I want all I want is for there for it to be a big like right and then like big big lead up and then you just hear tragedies for whores boom oh my gosh yes okay please listener i got so excited i know she's so excited she's throwing her microphone around <laughs> Whatever listener makes that dubstep remix, um, I'll send you like an author painting or something. Yeah, see, you guys can do it. Just, just, uh, just send it in. We'll show it off. It'll become the new intro. I guarantee it. <laughs> that Speaking would be such of, a vibe. Uh, dubstep <laughs> and uh, oh, no. tragedy for horrors, and uh, I can't, yes. I can't think of a good segue. Um. Speaking of people, Zora Neale Hurston. We're talking about one. Yep, we did it. We we got there. <laughs> that was the worst segue I've ever heard. <laughs> Look, I'm tired, Hannah. I'm recording. It wasn't in my even bedroom. a segue. You gave up halfway through, and you were like, "People, we're talking about one." <laughs> we're talking about people. Hold on. Okay, dubstep remix. Rewind rewinding back in time renaissance the harlem renaissance oh damn all right yeah i like that i like that good hannah's on it today guys i am not i am not on it i'm i'm tired i i was sick for almost two full weeks oh god that's what you get for having a kid no it's what i get for eating that dave's famous chicken wait you didn't have food poisoning for two weeks I got, this is what I think happened. I think that I ate at Dave's, not famous chicken, Dave's hot chicken. I'm going after them hard. They are now my enemy. <laughs> they they gave me food poisoning because it came out of nowhere. Um, and then And then there was a bug going around that was like getting people like some flu-like sickness. And I think my food poisoning shot my immune system so bad that I ended up getting this bug. And then I got home because I was working out of town at that time. I got home, spent the weekend barfing and stuff. And then I went back to work because I'm like, I'm a man. I can do this. And I couldn't. And I got <laughs> my wife sick and my son sick. And then I came home and I spent another like week recovering from this thing. Ooh. It was... It was the worst. I don't think I've ever been this sick in a very long, very long time. Two weeks is a long time. Uh, Coincidentally, I also had food poisoning last week. Actually, the exact day that you texted me to see when we were going to record, I was like throwing (laughs) up in a hotel bathroom because I was traveling for work and I was miserable. Did you eat Dave's Hot Chicken too? No, I ate at Philip's Seafood, so... Both restaurants are on blast. Yeah, because we were on blast. Ew. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) But uh, I'm glad we're both healthy now and can resume the fabulous life of Miss Zora Neale Hurston. Because last time, Tyler, you uh, teased that there would be zombies. So we've got to get to the zombies at some point. We've got to get. We got to get to the zombies just for for Bradley Botts, right? Like he's a zombie guy. We got to help him out. 
give him a new book idea. Oh, that would be awesome. I'll bet he could get several ideas from from Zora. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, so we we left off um, with Stephen King. You know, you got Cujo going around killing people, eating them up with rabies and stuff. What? Am I not? <laughs> am I not thinking of Cujo's own story? <laughs> oh my gosh! Cujo Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> what the? <laughs> oh my god! I was so lost. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, I think we made it a little bit past that. We left off with another one of her anthropology trips to New Orleans, um, which included oh, right. the time that she like caught a black cat, threw it in a cauldron, boiled the bones off. That's right. That was fucked did up. some crazy shit. Like I'm a huge cat person, so honestly, that that almost made me stop liking Zora, but I forgive her, you know. She she really committed herself to studying her subject matter. Yeah, it was all in the name of science, which we all know is you can do anything you want as long as it's in the name of science. Well, anthropology, which uh god, do I want to piss off anthropologists by saying it's not exactly science? <laughs> it's a soft science. <laughs> My anthropology friends will probably send me hate mail after this and be like, no, I got a bachelor's of science. (laughs) Anyway, so Zora had finished uh, another trip to New Orleans as well as the Bahamas. Uh, She went back to New York City and she showed Godmother, who is her like patron, this rich widow who's been funding all of her Mm -hmm. work for like the past few years. Um, She shows Godmother her progress and then she gets back to writing a play with her good pal, uh, writer Langston Hughes. Uh, but they soon had company, a woman named Louise Thompson, who was hired by Godmother to basically work as Hughes's secretary. Um, and soon the play and Louise Thompson would destroy their friendship. So Hughes and, uh, Zora wanted Mulebone to be an authentic comedy about African-American life that didn't involve the racial stereotypes that were so typical in um like plays and books about african americans at the time they based it on zora's short story which was called the bone of contention and that story involved two hunters who shoot at a wild turkey at the same time and then fight about who actually killed it then one man hits the other with a mule bone knocking him out And there's an ensuing assault trial in the city that turns into a religious argument because one man is a Baptist and the other is a Methodist. And the Methodist reverend apparently argues that a mule bone is not considered a weapon in the Bible. But the Baptist preacher says it is because of the story when Samson slays thousands with the jawbone of a donkey. And what is a donkey if not the father of a mule? (laughs) So Ty Ty the Bible guy, does any of that mean anything to you? Yeah, hell yeah, it does. Um, first of all, Christians are insane, and our divisiveness is the reason why we don't have more Christians. Um, <laughs> but also, the the whole like legal precedent set by Samson in ancient uh, um, Old Testament, the Book of Judges, when when Samson goes and murders uh, Philistines um, with a jaw of a donkey, like. It's a fun story as a kid, but it doesn't, I don't think it should be justified as a legal precedence in any way. I mean, she's, it's obviously a work of fiction that it it feels almost like she's writing um, satire, you know, like Mm -hmm. with the idea of what clergymen or lawyers or, or whoever utilizing the Bible in a way that runs laws with the most abstract ideology possible um Mm -hmm. which is scary because it's not that far from the truth and what people do nowadays so it it's kind of i don't know it's it's relevant (laughs) yeah it it, like the the satire the parody of it to me is relevant uh as a commentary today yeah i i like that because i thought it was a funny story but like you said um it's scary because 
sometimes uh, it's a little too close to the truth for comfort. Um, but I actually, I read her original short story in this collection that I got and I thought it was, it was one of the more entertaining stories of hers that I read. I, I thought it held up very well, you know, a hundred years later now, almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Is it, is it like the play or did they take a lot of liberties for the. So I haven't like read the play or anything, um, so I do know they finished Acts 1 and 3 of the play by the end of May of 1930. I don't know why they didn't write the middle one. They just kind of jumped around like that. Um, but in the meantime, tensions were really growing between Zora and Langston Hughes because uh, Hughes wanted to list that woman, Louise Thompson, as a third collaborator on the project. So basically give her another byline on it. Uh, yeah. he and Thompson were probably romantically involved. So maybe that had something to do with why he wanted to give her credit for it. But Zora was mm -hmm. like, no, she didn't do anything except type up our notes and like take dictation from us. Uh, which I think is very fair. Like somebody who just transcribes something is not the same as the creator. I mean, there's, you can still give them credit for that work though. Right. Like being like, you know uh screenplay assistant well, she was getting paid yeah i mean I, I i don't know it's a it's a different time right the credits were like back then up until like i think it was like the 70s editors of movies weren't even credited on at the end credits of movies and stuff because their job wasn't That's seen wild as, yeah, it wasn't seen as something that you would credit them with. All they're doing is what the director's telling them to do. Um, but as time went on, their job became an art form. And a lot of directors saw the work that went into editing and realized, oh, we should probably start giving these people credit for what is essentially making this movie good. Well, I mean, I think editing is arguably more creative than just transcribing what people are saying but i see the point um but zora was very offended by this she felt like she was getting boxed out of her own project and so she like kind of bailed on new york city for a bit and went back to the south to do more research uh meanwhile hughes showed acts one and three of mulebone to a theater producer and the producer thought it would make a great play um, he called Zora thinking she was in the process of finishing act two and she told Hughes that she would not send it to him and that the play was hers. So she got very possessive of it. Hughes said oh, he wow. had a lawyer suggesting he was ready to take legal action. And so basically both Zora and Hughes have told multiple versions of, of this story back and forth over time. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of he said, she said. But during the next few months, they fought back and forth over ownership of the story. Sometimes Zora would get a letter from Hughes suggesting he was over the conflict and ready to make amends, only to realize that the letter had been lost in the mail for weeks and there had been fresh controversy in the meantime. So this is like one of the issues with communication in the 1930s, is that it's so slow. Yeah, seriously. And then Langston Hughes found out that a theater company in Cleveland, Ohio, was planning to show Mulebone. So he was furious with Zora, thinking that she had like gone behind his back, finished the play, and sent it off to a theater company. But she had no idea how it got there. Um, it turned out that their friend, who was another one of these like wealthy uh, patrons of the Harlem Renaissance, um, he had shown a draft of the play to someone from the Theater Guild, who interpreted it as a nearly finished work um, and planned a a play about it they like actually went through the process of staging it so both zora and hughes went to cleveland in february of 1931 to try to hash out their issues before the premiere of the show like actors had been hired they'd been rehearsing yeah. they were getting ready to premiere it um, but they could not reconcile their differences and because of it the theater troupe stopped production and mulebone was never ever performed so oh, no. they missed their chance to see their work on stage and their friendship, which had been so close for a long time, was effectively over. That's 
Very sad. That's so stinking sad. Like, the idea that you could you could be that close. You're like, you're best friends with someone, basically. Let's go and write a play together. We both love to write. And then, you know, there's always inevitably the third person that shows up and ruins everything. A classic Yoko Ono son of a bitch. And then you have to deal with that. <laughs> but then, like, mail sucks. So, yeah, no, it's just nuts. Like, and then the fact that they, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I feel like no matter who it is, if someone goes out of their way to, like, try and reconcile with me, if there's an, if there's any effort at all, that's pretty much enough for me to, like, to, to put my pride aside and, be like, yeah, okay, we're going to figure this out. I don't think I could ever be like, nope, fuck you, I'm out. Well, unfortunately, I don't think either of these personalities were uh, willing to do that, it sounds like. And the crazy like end to this story is that uh, Langston Hughes, a year after all this drama, went to the Soviet Union, because this is the 1930s, with Louise Thompson, that homebreaker who <laughs> blew up their entire friendship. Um, and Louise Thompson was apparently a founding member of the Harlem branch of the Friends of the Soviet Union. So they went off to Russia to make propaganda for Russia. I take back everything I just said. She fully should have just cut ties with that son of a bitch and been like, go off, you Soviet communist bitch. I like how that changed everything. <laughs> I really want to know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> but this story is about Zora Neale Hurston, who loved America and stayed in the U.S. Yeah. We love America here, you bitch. You red son of a bitch. Although maybe not in this next uh, incident that's coming up, because um, while she was back in New York, she experienced an incident that she would remember as, quote, her most humiliating Jim Crow experience in 1931. And it was like, uh -oh. I think it was so offensive to her because it happened not in the South where she was used to, you know, having to carry a gun with her and not being able to stay in motels or, or hotels that were segregated and, you know, having just a, a worse travel experience there. But this happened in New York, which she thought was a very cosmopolitan, progressive place. So yeah. she had been suffering from a lot of health issues, intestinal issues for a long time. Um, and her her godmother, Charlotte Mason, uh, had a friend set up an appointment for Zora with a very prestigious doctor. But when Zora showed up, they obviously were not expecting a black woman because the receptionist got super embarrassed. She like rushed Zora into a private examination room that Zora said was basically a closet complete with like dirty laundry piled up in the, the corner. Uh, what? And then the doctor came in and tried to hurry her out. He was just like trying to get her out of his, his office. But Zora said she didn't rush out in indignant anger. Like she first wanted to. Instead, she took her time to quote, torture the doctor more like, so she <laughs> wanted to make him as uncomfortable as possible. Cause he was being such a yeah. dick. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do that to my doctor sometimes because you know, <laughs> I feel like they're always trying to just kick me out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Doctors, they always show up like 30 minutes late for your appointment and then rush you through it in 10 minutes. Dude, I had I had an appointment for a sleep apnea thing like two weeks ago just to check in because I, I got a CPAP and all that jazz. I'm sleeping better. It's great. Um, doctor wanted me to come in, do a checkup. He walks in and is like, sits down, looks at my paper and goes, you're doing great, man. Just keep it up. See you later. And then he just leaves. Like that was it. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then a nurse came in. She's like, yeah, the doc yeah, the nurse comes in or his assistant or whatever comes in and is like, yeah, so the doctor reviewed and your, your numbers are great. You're blah, blah, blah. So all we recommend is that you you replace this one device, this one part of your machine. I was like, he couldn't even have said that? Like, what the hell? <laughs> he literally just said, way to go, champ. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. I'm, I'm so sorry you suffered that way. 
Yeah, me and Zora Neale Hurston. <laughs> Zora uh, Neale Hurston's uh, experiences <laughs> pale in comparison. <yep. laughs> so one of the things that I love about Zora is that like she seems to have had a relentlessly positive attitude. Um, so like during during her first Southern anthropology um, excursion, she kind of handled the racism that she experienced uh, without resentment and instead saying, quote, sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it does not make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can any deny themselves the pleasure of my company? And I think that's like such a typically Zora way to look at problems. It's like, these people are so dumb. Like, don't they see how great I am? And then she just goes about her business. Yeah, that's great. The next little bit of drama is so listeners may have forgotten that for like the past few years, she has been married this whole time. And we wouldn't blame you for forgetting because she has not been with her husband since like a week after they got married. He's been off in Chicago this whole time. They decided to try that, you know, those classic long distance marriages that you always hear about. Always, you know, it's a recipe for success. Uh, Except in July of 1931, she granted Herbert Sheen uh, a divorce. He'd already found another woman he wanted to marry, probably one that was in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. He's a dude who's alone in Chicago. Like, when the heck is my wife going to show up? (laughs) In the same time, um, Godmother was, like, scaling back on her payments to about $100 a month, uh, trying to kind of, like, get Zora off the dole. I think she was trying to cut back on her financing of this, because also this is, like, during the Great Depression, so everybody's Mm, finances are a little bit tighter. Uh, Zora was not having much luck professionally, but she did come up with an idea for her own show. Um, she wanted to present black folk material on stage. She hired her own dancers and her singers and got a loan from Godmother. The show premiered in 1932 as, uh, The Great Day. Reviewers loved it, but it quickly, um, died out. It didn't make back the money that she spent on it. Again, depression, like people don't have a lot of money to spend on tickets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then she kind of like repackaged some of the material into another show. Again, it was like a, a success with critics, but no profits. And Godmother was getting really tired of losing money. Uh, so she paid Zora's way back to Eatonville, Florida, uh, and then continued sending an allowance for many months. Um, there Zora put on a Florida version of her latest stage production from Sun to Sun and her group performed around the state, so that was pretty good. Um, but really, like, this was kind of the end of the Harlem Renaissance with the mm. Great Depression. And Zora seemed to be the only black woman still trying to write professionally at this time. All the others who had, like, really flourished with their patronages and, and the interest in publishing their stories in the 1920s, they were they were out. Um, and then in 1933, she published a story called The Gilded Six Bits, which was about love, marriage, and infidelity. It was her first fiction in seven years, and immediately after it came out, she got four letters from publishers asking for book-length fiction. So, four oh, people nice. were like, or four companies were like, girl, you got it. So Wait, so does that mean you could, does that mean you could basically make four different contracts with with people and then you write four books all at once and then sell them all to the four different (laughs) publishers if you were really ambitious i guess you could but i think she focused on one and she chose jb lippincott um she thought they sent the most personal letter and she replied that she was writing a novel within two months she had sent a novel called jonah's gourd vine so she was a very fast writer i don't think i could turn something around and all Two the months. more reason to have made four four different contracts. If she can write a book in two months, she could have been a millionaire. Easy. Those kind of numbers. Oh, yeah. Easy. So while she was busy not being a millionaire, uh, she got evicted in October 16th of the, on October 16th of that year. Um, but that same night, she got a telegram from the publisher that her novel was accepted and she got an advance of $200, which was great for her 
maybe she wouldn't have been evicted if she had that a day earlier. Um, <laughs> but that paled in comparison to established white authors like Fanny Hurst, a friend of hers, uh, who regularly got $5,000 advances. Which would be a lot Racist for now, even. Ass America. While this was, uh, while her novel was in the works, she continued presenting folk concerts. Uh, she was driving around the country with the dancers. She was also invited to speak at women's groups, bookstores, and parties thrown by anthropologists. So, like, she was very, she was one of those authors who I think got to live out her her fame during her lifetime, kind of, even if it didn't result in. You know, her being a millionaire. Um, she was also awarded a fellowship to study for an anthropology doctorate at Columbia under the supervis- supervision of Franz Boaz, so her previous advisor. She started the fellowship in 1935, but soon it was cut f- down from two years to seven months, at which point she'd have to reapply. Um, it sounds like the people who were holding the purse strings didn't like her maverick and loud personality, which kind of makes sense if they're a bunch of <laughs> academics. They're like, why yeah, is this girl our so listeners loud? Don't remember, if people don't remember, uh, she never got along with other people too well sometimes, most of the time. She was constantly like, people were constantly kicking out her out of their house and such because of her maverick renegade loose cannon style of living you know yeah she was probably annoying (laughs) like she's got a lot of good qualities but it seems like she had trouble getting along with people sometimes and she also started dating a grad student named percival mcguire punter he was 23 years old (laughs) and remember zora has been uh lying about her age for like her entire life yeah uh, her entire adult life she's like what so he's 23 22 she's she's 44 (laughs) and and her new boyfriend is 23 so yeah um this dude percival was apparently very sexist he didn't like it when she did things for herself or like he got really mad if she tried to lend him a coin here or there for like a cab to get home uh, he asked her to give up her career, marry him, and leave New I don't York. Know. I don't know. I don't know if that's because he's sexist or because he doesn't like being reminded that she's basically his mom. <laughs> he doesn't know. Nobody knows she's old. <laughs> she's just walking around as a 43-year-old woman telling people she's about to turn the big 3-0. <laughs> I guess she she must have looked. She She could pull it off all the lying i think i think it's one of those things where it's very clear she was 43 but she presented it in a way that everyone she's like people are like how old are you and she's like i'm 30 and it's like do i don't i don't want to argue with you i don't want to call you out on it it's very obvious you're not but you know what you know you have so much confidence i'm not gonna I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna step on that mine. Nah, I'm good. I think people probably didn't question it because they're probably like, "Who would lie about that?" Like for so long. Yeah. Um. So anyway, she was fine with all of his demands except the first, which was that she give up her career, and this caused tension that escalated to slaps one night. Uh, they made what? up, but then she left without a word for another anthropology trip to the south. So whenever things get uh, tense in her personal life she just goes goes on more trips <laughs> i wish i could just go on trips whenever things get hard in my life <laughs> become an anthropologist that's that's it right there and that's the mistake i made <laughs> what really blows my mind is just like how many different projects zora had going on at any given time because that same year she also joined Um, One of President FDR's new federal work projects, which was the newly formed Negro unit. Um, And it was the of the uh, federal theater project. So this was a position where she got a salary. You know, the federal government was pouring money into different things to try to, like, stimulate the economy post uh, or during the Depression. Um, So she got the salaried gig there. She also had a story called Mules and Men, which was published to critical acclaim. She likes to write about donkeys a lot, huh? She likes donkeys, yeah. 
And then in 1936, she got a $2,000 grant from the Guggenheim Foundation to study magic practices in the West Indies. And I think this is where the zombie stuff finally comes in. Zombies. So she uh, boarded a ship to Jamaica, uh, where she was disturbed to find rampant misogyny. Uh, But since she was a visiting American, I guess she had it better than like the local Jamaican women. Um, so while she was there, she studied the people, the rituals, medicine men, and even went on a days long wild boar hunt. So again, I, I got to respect this lady. She really gets into her research. Yeah. It's, uh, you are starting to see that she has a very unscientific, um, way of, of doing this soft science, we'll call it of anthropology, because most people say you're supposed to observe, only observe. You know, you're not supposed to integrate with or be a part of because that can um, spoil the the outcome of what you're supposed to be representing. Um, it can yeah, it can you're skew not the, the subject, lens. right? Um, and but it but it definitely made for a better story. It definitely makes for a more interesting read and a better understanding from her point of view on what these people are doing because she's experiencing it um, at least somewhat. And that's something that, that I believe is really important about her personality is that she does get into the grime and the dirt of it to really understand. It's not about observing for her. It's about understanding for her. Um, and that's something that I really admire. Um, plus, she's seen zombies. So I gotta love that because she knows she's met him personally. Uh, real life, actual zombies. Okay, what does that mean? What? The zombies? What does that mean that she's met zombies? So she was talking about it in, in an interview and, and I think one of the books that I was doing a review on or reading a review on. Um, where like she, she knows she's seen the practices and how they, she had met one guy, basically real life zombies and in hoodoo. Um, it's not the dead come back to life necessarily. What happens is they have these, um, poisons and, or drugs that they use to put somebody into a state of hypnosis and make it seem like they're dead. And then they get buried or they, because they get, they don't bury them underground. They bury them like in caves or, um, other places where the body is sustained better. Um, they, they go and put the, the person in the cave and then Jesus style, that person wakes up at some point and the person that drugged them goes and finds them. And because they're in this hallucinatory state, the person takes advantage of them and keeps them all doped up and, and their brain all scrambled and then and then has them go do simple tasks that the person really has no idea what they're doing um but the the body can be trained to do a lot of stuff on instinct and so they go and make basically they create a slave labor force with these drugged up people to go cut down sugar cane and and do all kinds of manual labor um, and so that's where this, that's where zombies come from. Like that's literally the original, um, lore, not even lore, but the original idea of, of where we got George Romero's zombie idea, because he read these stories from Zora Neale Hurston and other accounts from hoodoo zombies of people dying and coming back to life. And then, um, and then, like, I'm sure there's some stories where maybe one of them went on a rampage or went crazy because they're being doped up all the time. And they fucking ate a person's face off or something. So then someone like George Romero in the 50s goes, that's awesome. I'm, I want to create a story with that. And then he writes Night of the Living Dead. And you get, you get zombie movie. Um, that's so, so cool. We, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and so she talked about how she had met a guy who was a zombie at one point and like he, you know, he was all fucked up in the head because of all the drugs that he was on. Um, and I believe I played it at the beginning of our, of our first episode. The, the last episode was her talking about zombies. 
and how she doesn't like talking about zombies because there's so much more to talk about that's just that's literally just one aspect of it that's wild do you know if that um practice originated in in the west indies and then did it migrate over to the states at all or did it kind of stay outside that i don't know um i i from everything i know it it was just in the caribbean in haiti and then and then the stories of it came to the west um and and i i just and then i know like that with like Zora Neale Hurston and and some other stories that came out, I'm I'm sure that George Romero wasn't the first one to write zombies in a more fantastical way, but he was the one that put it into a movie. That is super interesting. Um, yeah, and I guess that would make sense then because after she was in Jamaica, she went to Haiti, and apparently she was getting a little bit like unsettled with her research in Haiti, like feeling kind of like it was bringing bad spiritual energy toward her um, and she started to get worried about that. So she kind of tried to accelerate her her travels and get back to the U.S. Um, but also while she was doing her research in Haiti, she was there for six months. Um, at night, she wrote her next novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. So she was just like working on this on the side. She returned to New York in March of 1937, and she found out that their eyes were watching God would be published that fall. So it happened that fast. Like, yeah, she she started writing it in September and in March she found out she was it was going to get published. This is an era of writing where my disdain for um, I don't know, the non story the non plot driven narrative is king you got oh, for sure you got Zora Neale Hurston soon i mean it's still another like what 20 years before Ernest Hemingway really makes his big splash um but it's like all these stories these people in in the early to mid century they just they write these stories that like there's no plot it's literally just watching someone do stuff and i you know what as i say that fuck you, you just described literary fiction no what i just described was fucking youtube and all the shit I watch on YouTube, and I just realized that that's what I do now, is I just watch, I, I watch um, Good Mythical Morning, where all they do is eat food. There's nothing, there's no value to it in my life to know which, which burger is best from McDonald's or from... Um, or Burger King, or Jack in the Box, or what would a taco burger taste like? Like, I don't need to know these things, but watching it is the experience of living it. So now, you know what? In talking, I'm not joking, guys, ghoul gang. In the last minute and a half of me talking, I have completely changed my opinion of this entire literary genre because that's that is what it is. It's it's YouTube of the mid century. Just just experiencing is the experience. A hundred years from now, people are going to assign these YouTube videos as like required watching in an anthropology class. That's you're one hundred percent right. They're gonna do classic YouTube literature, classic YouTube. Um, I don't know. Videature. Yeah, I don't know what to call it. Videature. <laughs> Now that you've uh, described the the genre of just life happening, um, she, let's see, she got her fellowship renewed. She went back to Haiti. Um, Oh, and that's when she investigated how zombies were made. And she got super sick while she was, like, doing that investigation. So she, like, correlated the two things and thought that it was happening because she was getting too deep into, like, black magic and stuff. Um, yeah. So she went back to the U.S. in late September, a week after Their Eyes was published. Um, so she came back. Her book had been published. Reviewers were, like, raving about it. And then the next spring, she was hired to be on the editorial staff of the Florida Writers Project, so one of these um, FDR programs. 
Uh, it was a position that had been lobbied for her by the national director of this program, so kind of a big deal. But because it was Florida, where they were still, like, in, like, deep segregation, she was paid less than white employees on the junior interviewer level. And then while she was visiting D.C., she impressed the national director so much that he sh- he proposed she be put in charge of um, this, this project. Um and that her monthly salary be more than doubled. Zora's boss, of course, um, did not do this, but they did give Zora a big, bigger travel stipend, which I think she appreciated, so she could go back and do more, more Florida anthropology work. I wish that I could go on a trip to write a book and then come home and someone's like, hey, just so you're aware... We got you a job um, <laughs> that you want to do. We went out of our way to get you this job. So enjoy the fact that you were on a trip and you wrote an entire novel and you got it published this year because we also got your job. <laughs> it is uh, pretty serendipitous. She she had a lot of, uh, I think her, so even though she like pissed off a lot of people, I think she had a very magnetic personality with other people. So I think that's yeah. why, you know, she, she found it so easy to get her her godmother patron and all these people who just, like, want to give her jobs and want to give her a promotion because she's very likable um, in certain contexts. <laughs> and then shortly after that, the Federal Writers Project called on her to participate in a statewide audio recording quest. Uh, so she went around with a crew and, like, this giant 1930s era tape recorder recording these so songs she's and a freaking podcaster is she just everything i want to she's be? everything all at once <laughs> not cool zora in 1939 she married a 23 year old um writers project education department employee named albert price the third she okay so at this time she was still passing herself off as a 29 year old even though she was 48 good lord it will that would be the equivalent of me saying i'm 14 years old (laughs) (laughs) i mean hey everybody i'm about to start freshman year next year and i want to i want to do a podcast about books is this weird is it creepy is it predatory? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's fucking weird. We'd think it was super creepy if it was a dude doing it. I don't know if I think it's creepier if a dude's doing it. I think it's just... I mean, we're living in an age now where people can just people can just be with whoever they want to be with. I'm not going <laughs> to get mad at them. But it's you it's, know what it is? It's not, it's not the fact that she's with a guy who's 25 years younger than her. Less than it's half the her fact age. That she's she's passing herself off as a twenty nine year old, twenty years younger than herself. Like that's the part that gets me. Yeah, that's wild. Um, it will not surprise you though to learn that they never actually lived together for more than a few days at a time. <laughs> <laughs> she got sick of his quote obscene language. And threats to, quote, beat the hell out of her and ditched him. Oh, my God. Uh, and she also ditched her WPA job after six weeks of marriage. So I think Herbert Sheen is still her longest lasting relationship. Because he was the furthest away from her. He was the furthest away. She published another work of fiction, Moses, Man of the Mountain, in 1939, that same year that she was briefly married. Uh, that fall, she joined the faculty of the North Carolina College for Negroes in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, rumors swirled that she was fooling around with male students. You know, we cannot confirm or deny this, but it does not sound out of character. Yeah, because she's said that she's probably like the youngest staff member there. She's probably like yeah. a 23-year-old. As she's literally going full Benjamin Button. The older she gets, the younger she's perceived. And so by the time she's 60, she's going to be an 18-year-old student. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, this was another instance of where 
she seems to have clashed with people more than endeared them to her because um, it's said that she flouted rules and customs at the college. She carried herself in a confident manner, which is totally not academic. Uh, she wore <laughs> colorful clothing, God forbid, <sighs> of extreme what? styles. Uh, all this in a conservative college environment. So she ended up resigning on March 1st. So she spent less than a full year teaching. I saw her damn ankles. Fred, I, I saw her damn ankles and I don't know what to do with myself. I can't think straight when there's women walking around and you can see ankles underneath the bright green dress. <laughs> Not the ankles in bright colors. A couple of years after that, she published her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road. And I read part of this for preparation for the episode, but because it's Zora, I, I was reading other stuff that said, like, you know, maybe don't take that autobiography as 100% fact because she exaggerates a little bit. She also jumps around a lot. So it was kind of hard to follow because it was not chronological yeah. at all. Um. But yeah, so she apparently was doing well enough that she wrote her own autobiography. And then as we get toward her later career, she was having a lot of trouble getting publishers to accept another book from her. And she couldn't get enough money to go off on a, another anthropology expedition to Honduras that she was really dreaming of. Um, so she wrote some freelance magazine articles, and then she worked on the Harlem congressional campaign of Grant Reynolds, a Republican. So she dabbled in politics now. Finally, Classic. in the spring of 1947, she met with a new publisher who gave her a book deal and a $500 advance. She took the advance money and immediately set sail for Honduras within a month. <laughs> a month after that, she sent draft pages from her work in progress to her new editor, uh, they liked it and they sent her $500 more. So she holed up in Honduras for a while, finishing the book. And then she headed for the rainforest for more research. Uh, in early 1948, the publishers brought her back to the U.S. and scheduled her new book to be released that October. So again, like super fast turnaround time. Uh, yeah. And that book was called yeah. Seraph on the Suwanee. On September 13th of 1948, police knocked on Zora's door in Harlem with a warrant for her arrest. What? She had been accused by a former landlady of molesting the landlady's 10-year-old son, Billy, for more than a year. What Two other boys joined in on the accusations, and Zora vehemently denied them. Her passport showed that she'd been in Honduras at the time that the boys said the abuse happened. But then when they had a hearing, they changed the date to when she'd gotten back from Honduras. Um, oh, my God. And the boys also accused a janitor in the building. So Zora's dealing with all this in her personal life. Her publishers apparently weren't bothered about all of these accusations. And they believed that she'd eventually be cleared. So back they then, went ahead with the book. They didn't care what your personal life was. As long as you're pumping out the stories, that's all they care about. If that happened today, her book would have been canceled. Like, there would be no book for Zora. Yeah, in two seconds. Absolutely. 100%. All over. Let's but go back they to didn't days have Twitter. when you can, you can do whatever you want to do. As long as you write a good book, your name will be on a shelf. As she's, be, like, about to go on trial for child molestation, her yeah. new book is getting great reviews. Um, 3,000 copies were sold within days, which was a lot for the time, and it prompted a second printing. It wasn't until the next spring that the truth came out, at which point Billy, this 10-year-old kid, um, had levied abuse allegations at at least three other adults. So Billy confessed that he had made up the story after his mom beat him and demanded he explain why he'd been acting strangely. He and the other two boys had actually been banging each other. And they didn't want to get in trouble. What? And so after seeing that their words had power in getting Zora and the janitor in trouble, they started accusing a bunch of other adults that they didn't like. So oh my God. luckily oh for my Zora, God. their whole scheme came crumbling down and she was cleared. That is, that's crazy. She should have written a book about that. That's wild. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Just talk about people's life, right? That's all you got to do. You don't have to do anything in your stories. That's something that's not being done that's actually very interesting to read about. Total total witch hunt. <laughs> so after all of this is over, she moved to Miami. 
She had another work in progress that she emailed to her, or not emailed, she snail mailed to her editor. (laughs) (laughs) She sent it it off. Um, But the editor was not impressed. They said it had lots of weaknesses. Um, So Zora set about rewriting it, but she was also out of money again, a theme in her later life. Now 59 years old, she took a job as a maid for a couple in a ritzy Miami suburb. The couple had no idea that this was like a super famous, successful author until the wife stumbled upon a story by Zora in the Saturday Evening Post. Soon, a Miami Herald reporter was writing a story about the famous author turned maid. Like they came out here, they profiled Zora. Zora of course, didn't want to admit that she was out of money, so she said she had taken the job as a way to rest her mind and as research. Uh, she said that she wanted yeah. to use her That's experience a classic to start... move. Yeah. She was like, I'm going to start a national magazine for and by domestic workers. Um, so <laughs> that was how she played it. But the publicity around this landed her several ghostwriting offers, so pretty sh- soon she was able to quit her maid job and get back to writing. Uh, One of the other significant things from this period of her life was that she covered the trial of a woman named Ruby McCollum, a black woman accused of shooting and killing the white man she was having an affair with. Um, We might go into a deeper discussion of this in our chill episode because it's very long and involved and I think it's super interesting. I've done trial coverage before and I think it's um, for someone who also has creative writing tendencies, I could see where it would you know, be kind of a font for, for material. Um, Harper Lee in our episode, she, she drew on a lot of trial, um, inspiration. Um, but anyway, in this case, ultimately the woman was convicted and sentenced to be executed via electric chair, but Hurston and another journalist, um, were both instrumental in getting the case appealed to the Florida Supreme court and Ruby McCollum was saved from the electric chair, but committed to a mental institution. So, Zora kind of saved her life. So a little bit of a a little bit of a step up, yeah. Yeah, she didn't Instead die. Instead of your brains turning to jello, all you eat is jello. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Hopefully, it was cherry flavored. <laughs> so random that you have a preference on the jello you're gonna eat for the rest of your life. I don't give a shit I what flavor it is. Legitimately, cannot remember the last time I ate Jello. It might have been in middle school. Hey, real quick, how do you feel about Jello that has solid things in it? No, absolutely not. Right? It's so weird. It's Jello. Like, I don't want hard things in there. Also, J- Jello molds. Like, what are the like? Why? <laughs> that that's actually I like. I like, like Jello is a fun shape. Hell yeah. No. If you can make a I jello like, look like something, that's that's fun. This is the most random tangent ever. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Getting to the end of Miss Zora's life, um, she briefly held another teaching job. She wrote some political columns and she studiously worked on research and writing of a novel about King Herod. Like this was a years long obsession of hers. She had pages and pages of research and drafts so random. Um, but publishers were not interested in her years-long endeavor in the um, guy that tried to kill jesus yeah yeah no random <laughs> they, they weren't picking up what she was putting down in may of 1959 she actually applied for welfare so that's like the end of her illustrious career she's she's had all of these works of fiction that were so well received by critics um but now she's like living in abject poverty toward the end of her life um she had also been in and out of the hospital for hypertensive heart disease and then in october of 1959 she suffered a stroke and was sent to a nursing home she apparently remained in good spirits though and was visited by one of her brothers and her niece. So she wasn't like completely alone, even though most of her family lived far away or had passed away. Um, and then on January 28th of 1960, Zora had another stroke and was pronounced dead. In early February, her funeral was attended by more than 100 people, uh, including 
uh, according to the biography, at least 16 white people. So, you know, she, even though she's in, you know, mid-civil rights South, um, she still had a lot of friends across the the spectrum there. I just, I really want at my funeral... I really want somebody to take a tally of how many people <laughs> of what races show up. I think everybody has to really submit important. a card when they show up. They yeah. they what, have to like check it off. What race do you identify as? And that yep, it'll be a form. You know, like male, female. N- you know, preferred not to answer. What race? White, non-Hispanic. <laughs> um. <laughs> The forms are really, really too intensive these days. Now, will you have, like, security prevent people from coming in if the ratio is off? No, it's not about it. No, I want I want as many people at my funeral as possible. I want it to be. Have you ever seen the Matrix 2 um, Matrix Reloaded? Um, I think Talon made me watch it once, but I think I fell asleep. So I've not oh, seen whatever well, scene all, you're about to lame. Yeah. The scene where Morpheus is like given his big sermon in the cave. And then there's like, and everyone's like, Oh God, the machines are going to come and kill us all. And he's like, so what we have to do is party our asses off. And then all of a sudden there's <laughs> rave music and like, you can see through people's shirts and, and there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. That's what I want my funeral. I want my funeral to be like, I want the pastor to get up and be like, you know, Tyler was a great guy. He he loved Jesus. You know, if, if you want to know more about Jesus, check out his works. And now we're going to start. And, and we got, um, we got uh, Skrillex <laughs> lined up. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then Skrillex just comes out. I was like, <laughs> tragedies for whores. <laughs> oh, my God. Way to come full circle there. Well, I hope at yeah. least 16 white people show up to your funeral. At Tyler. least 16 white people. <laughs> <laughs> And then the last thing I have to say about Zora Neale Hurston is um, her life's work and papers very nearly literally went up in flames a few days after her funeral. Um, A deputy was driving past her house when he noticed smoke coming from the backyard. He ran over and saw that the people hired to clean the place were burning her old storage trunk. And the deputy luckily knew who Zora was and put out the fire, saving many of her papers, including the unfinished manuscript of The Life of Herod the Great, that, you know, multi-year project of hers that no publisher wanted. Her her Uh, great manifesto. Yeah, lots of other papers um, as well. And many of them, even though they were charred, were donated to the University of Florida per Zora's wishes. So shout out to that deputy who nice. was like, who, who was very literate. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's Zora Neale Hurston. She kind of makes me feel bad about how little I'm doing with my life. Um, She doesn't make me feel bad about that. She makes me feel bad for um, not being able to keep friends around it. Like, like I feel bad for her because she was, so much of a personality that people didn't really like her that much. They all um, liked and obviously, her. like, I don't know, man. It shows at some point that she's like, she's like getting more and more poor as her life goes on. Maybe it's because, again, maybe it's because she's like, I'm 30 years old. And it's like, you are clearly 72, lady. Stop <laughs> lying about how old you are. This is weird. Wait, how old was she when she died? Hold on. She was born in 1891 and died in 1960, so she was 69. 69. <laughs> 69. <laughs> the perfect age to die. <laughs> if I die when I'm 69, Alistair will be um, in his 30s. 20. Yeah, so I was 33 when he was born. Jesus age. Um, and... So that would that would make him thirty six. Yeah. So yeah. That'd be sad. I, he'd be he I. Will, yeah, he'd be my age basically, and I I could deal with my dad dying. I don't want to think about that. Oh my god. Um. <laughs> I cannot deal with my mom dying. Don't die. <laughs> 
I can't deal with your mom dying. Bro, Hannah, if your mom died, I would be more of a wreck than if my dad died. I'll say that oh right now. <laughs> well, luckily, my mom is not 69 yet. So she's got some good long years ahead <laughs> of So she's got plenty of, of time. Yeah. <laughs> this is it's why have we gone now. on so many tangents today? <laughs> because we haven't talked in a month. And this is what happens when we haven't talked in a month. This is why it's important to have the chill episode. So I apologize, people. We will be equally off topic next episode, but then, then next we'll be episode back. We'll be I will have, I will have a full um, itinerary of what my funeral will look like, um, <laughs> all the events, everything that will, that's going to be the, planned. The for playlist. The day. Yeah. The well, the weekend really. It's going to be more of a festival, you know, oh, okay. um, to kind of you know commemorate everything so now what um, shape would you like the jello mold appetizers at your funeral to be in oh my god are they gonna be like you said appetizers plural is this little mini jellos or is this one giant jello uh both you know one giant jello surrounded by mini because what i want is a swimming pool filled with jello that's what i want (laughs) And then, and what I want, what I, here's how, here's how the weekend starts. Okay. The weekend, <laughs> the death, the death funeral weekend starts with death Coachella. the lowering, the lowering of the, of the coffin, but the lowering of the coffin is actually being lowered into a pool of jello. And then everybody has to eat the jello to get my coffin out so that we can then go put it somewhere else. <laughs> I hope I die first. I don't want, like no offense. I don't want to come to your funeral. You don't have to eat the Jello. It's fine. It'll melt eventually. You said we all have to eat the Jello to get to the coffin. That's true. I did say that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I think we've successfully derailed this uh, episode. Do we have any final thoughts? You know, I, I kind of, I already said kind of what I wanted to, but like. I I love that Zora was was really a go-getter and it wasn't for the sake of um civil rights. It, it wasn't that she was going out of her way to be political or to push an agenda. She wanted to just see the things that interested her, you know, and and she wanted to find things that inspired inspired her writing. And that's what I really like. I'm all for progress and moving forward in society and, you know, having life be better for everybody. But at a certain point when your entire agenda is politically um, motivated, then you're going to be tuned out and you're going to be tone deaf even to what actually needs to be said. And so when we write to make ourselves better and to to see what we see in the world that's when things really start to change in ourselves and in the people around us i think that's why zora's legacy is so um ensconced in the civil civil rights era even though she herself wasn't like i have to we have to push this agenda. She was just like, I, I'm a part of these people and this is what we are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what I really liked about her too, is she was very much an individualist and, you know, she, she would be friends with you. She didn't care like necessarily what your politics were, what your, your race was. Um, She just saw people as individuals and liked that about them. Um, And I wish I, I think I made, some tabs in in the biography I was reading about it, but I think there were certain times when other people who other writers who were more outspoken during the civil rights movement kind of like clashed with her a little bit because she wasn't getting out there more. Um, yeah, but I think that just like was not how she saw the world necessarily. Um, it wasn't that she was like self centered, but I think she was very much more interested in seeing herself as Zora rather than a representative of larger groups that she belonged to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's where I land with it. I, I liked the writing of uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, 
I, I found her story compelling. Um, and the more you talked about it, the more interesting it was. I was shocked by pretty much everything I learned about her. <laughs> I was yeah. I was unprepared for so many uh, zombies and magic <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, so our next episode is going to be chill. Um, we're going to talk about, I mean, I feel like we're going to talk a lot because like I said, we, we haven't been recording. We haven't recorded in a month. And even before that, we, we took a, a small break with stuff. So um, it's going to be a fun episode. I think we're going to go off the rails. <laughs> I can't wait. But in the meantime, uh, stay safe, cool gang. She said it! She said it! It feels appropriate now with talk of zombies and stuff. (laughs) 